Good morning, Bethel. Good to see you all this morning. All right, well, if you're not there already, I'm going to turn back to Psalms 42 and 43. All right, well, we are in the middle of a series called um, Summer in the Psalms for the Fight of Faith. So we're taking some select psalms and um, hitting some very practical issues that plague us um, in our lives on a daily, weekly, normal basis. So the first week was guilt and faith. So what does, how does faith in Jesus deal with our guilt? The second week, we talked about, what was the second one? <laughs> That's great. I was just checking to see, make sure you're awake. Last week, what was it? Blank. Anger. Thank you. Um, so anger and faith. Glad you guys are awake. Just checking. Um, so this morning, at least, I know what this morning's topic is this morning. It's um, <laughs> depression and faith. I think I do. Wow. All right. Um, so depression and faith, discouragement, being downcast, sadness. And I think lots of us deal with this all the time. So um, I also have mentioned this book several times, Don't Follow Your Heart. Um, we're encouraging people to take it and read it during this series. It's a great compliment. So I'm actually going to begin by um, reading several paragraphs from one of the chapters in here. And I think you'll get a taste for why this book goes so well with the series and also why we're recommending it. So this chapter is called When God Seems Silent. God can be maddeningly hard to get. When God says that his ways are not our ways, he really means it. We have these encounters with him where he breaks into our lives with power and answers our prayers and wins our trust, and he makes the garden of our faith, waters the garden of our faith, making it lush and green. And then there are these seasons when chaos careens with apparent carelessness through our lives and the world, leaving us shattered, or an unrelenting darkness descends, or an arid wind we don't even understand blows across our spiritual landscape, leaving the crust of our soul cracked and parched. And we cry to God in our confused anguish, but he just seems silent. He seems absent. And he goes on and says, why does it need to feel that way? Why the perceived silence? Why can it seem like God is playing hard to get or like he's just standing there looking at us when we cry to him for help? I don't claim to understand all the mysteries of this experience. No doubt we underestimate the effects of remaining sin and our need for this discipline in order to share God's holiness, Hebrews 12. But I believe there are clues for another purpose as well. I'll rephrase them as questions. Why is it that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt? Why is water so much more refreshing when you're really thirsty? Why am I almost never satisfied with what I have, but always longing for more? Why can the thought of being denied a desire for marriage or children or freedom or some other dream create in us a desperation we previously didn't have? Why do deprivation, adversity, scarcity, and suffering often produce the best character qualities in us, while prosperity, ease, and abundance often produce the worst? Do you see it? There is a pattern in the design of deprivation. Deprivation draws out desire. Absence heightens desire. And the more heightened the desire, 
the greater its satisfaction will be. It is the mourning who will know the joy of comfort, Matthew 5, 4. It is the hungry and thirsty who will be satisfied. Longing makes us ask. Emptiness makes us seek. Silence makes us knock. Deprivation is in the design of this age. We live mainly in the age of anticipation, not gratification. We live in the dim mirror age, not the face-to-face age. The paradox is that what satisfies us most in this age is not what we receive, but what we are promised. The chase is better than the catch in this age, because the catch we're designed to be satisfied with is in the age to come. And he ends like this. So you desire God and ask for more of him, and what do you get? Stuck in a desert, feeling deserted. You feel disoriented and desperate. Don't despair. The silence, the absence is phenomenological. It's how it feels. It's not how it is. You are not alone. God is with you. And he is speaking all the time in the priceless gift of the objective word. So you don't need to rely on the subjective impressions of your fluctuating emotions. If desire is to earth, what sight is to heaven then God answers our prayer with more desire. It's the desert that awakens and sustains desire. It's the desert that dries up our infatuation with this world. And it's the desert that draws us to the well of the world to come. Which leads us right into Psalm 42 and 43. Because the psalmist is experiencing a spiritual drought. And I imagine you've experienced the same thing. So this is pretty relevant for normal people like us. So let's dive in here. First point is spiritual drought conditions. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. Um, You'll also see the points on the screen if you prefer that. So as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. And then in verse 5, and again down in verse 11, and we saw it at the end of chapter 43, verse 5, he says that his soul is downcast and in turmoil within him. So again, spiritual drought conditions. And then speaking of water, he takes that image a little further in verse 7 and says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So one commentator, Derek Kidner, writes, here's the picture of all that is overwhelming. His footing gone and wave after wave submerging him. This is the very language that Jonah takes up in the depths. So have you ever felt that way where you get hammered with one thing and then there's another wave, another wave, and another wave? And it's depressing and you just get overwhelmed and discouraged and downcast. The psalmist knows how we feel. Verse 9, I say to my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, 
Where is your God? And then in Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So he's really struggling here. So this will help a little bit as far as why he describes his circumstances the way that he does, is that this worship leader, this spiritual leader in Israel is in exile among the enemies of God. And so the enemies are taunting the psalmist, saying, where's your God? So the psalmist knows that God's for him, but his circumstances seem to tell a different story. His enemies think that his God is weak, or maybe his God's just forgotten about him. And so you get that thrown at you over and over And we can also have our self-doubt rising up from within. And so another commentator, Willem van Gemmeren, writes, the question is how a man who desires God's presence can experience alienation from God. Living in isolation from the land, he could not experience God's presence in the magnificent structure of the temple. And then he says this, deep down in his heart, he asked the same question, where is my God? So the enemy is saying, where is your God? But he's really asking, where are you? So he's in a spiritual drought. He's in the darkness of depression. He's struggling. So perhaps you need to just start by hearing just that this morning. Here is a spiritual leader in Israel, a mature believer, and he's downcast. He's really sad and discouraged and depressed. Saints go through darkness, and some of them pretty often. And they need light and truth to break in and give hope to their hopelessness. Saints go through dryness, and some of those saints pretty often, some of us pretty often, and the need for living water to come and quench our thirsty souls is great. So if you struggle with spiritual drought-like conditions, deep discouragement, depression, you're not alone. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, how many struggle? I'm going to ask for a show of hands because I think sometimes what's such a problem in the church is we think we're the only one or we just don't talk about it with each other. Or if I was really mature, this wouldn't happen. No. So how many struggle on a regular basis with deep discouragement and feeling downcast and losing hope? And I'm not raising my hand just, you know, because you're supposed to raise your hand right now, but because I'm identifying myself as one in. So look around. There's a few hands up, more than a few hands up. Just as the body cannot live without water, so the soul cannot live without God. And the psalmist is parched, feels like he's dying for God. But note that he's dying for God. What he really wants is not just for God to pull some strings, to get him out of this jam. He wants more of God because God himself is what satisfies his thirsty soul. As the deer pants, so my soul pants for you, O God. In the next Psalm 43, again, you can see how they hang together. Verses 3 and 4, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to 
your dwelling. I want to I be close to you. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you. So that's another thing we ought to see, that oftentimes when we're in the dumps, when we are down and depressed, we just want out. But what we really need is God. So where does this come from? Where does depression and despondency or feeling downcast come from? I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on clinical depression, but we live in a day and age that the narrative is that the causation is chemical, right? By and large, that's what you're going to get. And so you treat this chemical issue with chemicals. So here's the problem. Even in the medical community, they don't really know what causes depression. So Mayo Clinic, causes of depression. It's not known exactly what causes depression. As with many mental disorders, a variety of factors may be involved, such as biological differences, sure, absolutely. Brain chemistry, neurotransmitters are naturally occurring brain chemicals that likely play a role in depression, sure, but is that cause or effect? I mean, again, there's all these questions that still are out there in our world. Hormones, of course, um, postpartum, during pregnancy, thyroid problems, menopause, etc. Of course, nobody's denying that. Inherited traits, definitely there are families, folks that just they seem to be more prone to melancholy and depression and so forth. So there's lots of complex reasons, triggers, proclivities, some physical, some social, whatever, some familial. There's also lots of kind of very normal factors and influences like tiredness and stress and illness and all of the rest, okay? But what we can't fail to recognize is that a central and significant, we could even say the ultimate cause of spiritual depression is unbelief. So whatever the factors are, this is a spiritual battle. And there is an enemy of our souls who loves to take these dynamics and the triggers, whatever they may be for you, and he loves to just kind of exaggerate them. So listen to this quote by John Piper. Wherever despondency might come from, Satan paints it with a lie. The lie says, this is it, you will never be happy again. You will never be strong again. You will never have vigor and determination again. Your life will never again be purposeful. There is no mourning after this night, no joy after this weeping. All is gathering gloom, darker and darker. This is not a tunnel. It is a cave, an endless cave. So what do we need when we are in the pit of despair, when we are in the midst of spiritual drought conditions? We need, in that dark cave, we need the light of God's face. So point number two, God's face and mine and yours. So there's actually an interesting thing happening in the Hebrew that unfortunately is not represented in most English translations. But did you hear that refrain? You hear it three times in Psalm 42 and 3. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God, right? So 
42.5 and 11 and 43.5. But they look identical in English. The NAS actually points out the difference, but it seems like all the other English translations don't see this. But they're not identical. At least 42.5 and 42.11 are not identical. 43.5 is the same as 42.11. But look at 42.5. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Literally, 42.5 says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the salvation of his face. And then 42.11 and 43.5 says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the salvation of my face. Here's the point, and it's wonderful. 42.5 makes it clear that the mere presence of God, our Savior, changes everything. When he shows his face, when he shows up, it leads to the lifting up of our downcast faces so that we can once again praise the God of our salvation. So the salvation of his face leads to the salvation of our face. It's beautiful. Don't you know how a countenance can change everything? Have you ever been just totally down in the dumps, and if the right person comes along, maybe with the right news, or just because it's that person, and they smile, their lit-up face lights up your face, right? Have you ever had that happen? Shouldn't the smile of God, the favor of God, be the thing that we most long to see? And when you catch a glimpse of that, it can change everything, right? So the psalmist is downcast, looking at his troubles. He's looking back, you know, remembering how it was when he used to, you know, go with the throng and praise the Lord. And it's almost like this nostalgia makes it worse because of his present scenario. He wishes he was back there. He needs to look up and look ahead in faith, knowing that God will soon answer and he will soon again praise his saving God. So William Cooper, um, who lived around the same time as John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, they actually became friends, and Cooper struggled mightily with severe depression, tried to commit suicide several times, um, but Newton kind of walked with him through all of this, and he wrote some amazing poems and hymns, and one of them is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. So listen to the wisdom in this psalm. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. 
But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So precisely because the light of God's face, a glimpse of the God of our salvation can change everything, can lift us out of this miry bog and set our feet on the rock, can shine light into that dark cave and draw us out, because it's really a tunnel, not a cave. We can, we should cry out with assertive and defiant faith. So point number three, assertive and defiant faith. So for some of you, that might sound like, especially if you're given to depression, if you're struggling in that place right now, what goes along with depression? You just don't feel like doing anything. It's like no motivation. Assertive and defiant faith? Uh, yeah, like that's the problem. I don't have any. Well, can you at least notice how the psalmist just almost vacillates in the psalm back and forth between depression and hope and confidence. Like, he, he swings back and forth multiple times. And you could say, well, wh which is it, man? But isn't that how we live? Like, isn't that our struggle? Is we so often are kind of like hot and cold, on and off. And that ought to encourage us. That even though we may feel so frail and weak, we actually can fight that unbelief by faith, even if it's just a little ember, we can blow on it. The assertive, defiant faith in this psalm is the same faith that is often struggling and confused and discouraged and weak and waffling and defeated. So that's really encouraging. So let's look at what it looks like, this assertive, defiant faith. It pleads. Look at 43.3 to just hear what this kind of faith sounds like. Actually, look first. I mean, again, look at the pleading. So if you're in the desert, do you cry out like this? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you. Verse 9, look down there. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's pleading with God to show up and answer. Look at 43.3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Show me the light of your face, the light of the truth of the gospel. Shine light on the path out of this pit, this darkness. Lead me back to you. So this is huge. This is key. I'm in the dark. I'm discouraged. I'm feeling hopeless. Send out your light and your truth. Light at the end of the tunnel to lead me out into the bright daylight of hope. Help me out of here. So how many of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? Maybe even more hands than before. So remember when Christian and Hopeful, they got discouraged by the roughness of the path, and they came by Bypath Meadow that ran parallel to the rough pilgrim path at that place. And so there's this soft path in the meadow that's running parallel on the other side of the fence. So they figured it wouldn't hurt because it's, you know, so close to that, to the path. We'll just walk on the soft path for a while. But little did they know that this meadow was owned by giant despair, right? So not long after entering the field, the rains came, night fell, they realized the error of their way, they tried to turn back, you know, it's flooded out in places. So 
They can go no further. They find a place of shelter. They fall asleep. And in the morning, the giant finds them sleeping. He captures them, takes them to his home, which is Doubting Castle. So he locks them up. He's starving them. He's beating them. He also torments them by telling them that there's no hope. They ought to just take their own lives. And Christian was almost convinced that taking his own life would be the better way out. But Hopeful talks him out of it, encouraging him to wait on the Lord. And here's what he says. Let us consider again the outcome of this is not in the hands of giant despair. Other prisoners like us, as far as I can tell, who have been captured by the giant have managed to escape. Who knows but that God who made the world may soon cause giant despair to die or that the giant may forget to lock us in or that he may have another one of his fits and lose the use of his limbs. If that ever happens again, I am determined to gather all my courage and try my utmost to escape. I was a fool not to attempt an escape during the first fit. So, my brother, let us be patient and endure for a while longer. The time may come and we have an opportunity to escape, but let's not murder ourselves. Around midnight, Christian and Hopeful began to pray. They're pleading and continued to almost the break of day. Shortly before the sun came up, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I might instead walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that I believe will open any lock in Downing Castle. Hopeful responded, that is good news, good brother. Take it out and let's try it. So the psalmist is giving us the key. He's not giving us a simple, cheap, easy answer, but he is saying there are promises. So when we are downcast, we can cry out for our God and Savior to send out his light and his truth and lead us out of the dark cave into the light of his presence, the light of his face shining on us and lifting us out of our downcast darkness. So this assertive, defiant faith is pleading. It's also a remembering faith. Look at 42.6. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. So he's remembering the character of God. Even though God seems like he's so far off, defiant faith in the face of depression seeks to remember the character of God, what he has done, his faithfulness, his track record in the past. So what you're doing is pushing back on what feels true with what is true. Alec Motier writes, Romans 12, 1 to 2, the mind is renewed by feeding on new thoughts. If we're only anxious about our anxieties, worrying over our worries, stewing our problems, we're only nourishing the old mind, the downcast spirit. No, says Psalm 42, 4, 4 and 6, I will turn from old memories. I keep remembering me, <laughs> remembering you. The mind feeding itself on divine truth, dwelling on the promises of God, recalling his endless mercies and unchanging love, turning its eyes upon Jesus, that mind is walking the pathway of renewal. So pleading, remembering, and then preaching. Again, back to that refrain that we see three times. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God? Do you know you can take your soul to task? when you're depressed? Have you ever done this? You know, you can preach to yourself. Does that seem weird to you? 
Do you ever do this? Do you ever preach to yourself, or are you just still only listening to yourself? So Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've quoted this before, maybe a couple years ago, but this is so helpful. He was a medical doctor before he was a preacher in London. So he understood human body, and he understood the human soul, and he has a book called Spiritual Depression. And here's one of the things he says in that book. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is, in a sense, this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You know what he's talking about, right? You wake up in the morning, and all the stuff you ought to get worried about starts just buzzing through your head like crazy. You're going to sit and just listen to that narrative and stew and get freaked out. And He says, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man in Psalm 42 his treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul, he asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn upon yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Defiant faith. Just defy everything that's coming at you trying to convince you that what is unreal is real and what is real is unreal. So basically, pull yourself into a counseling session and take your soul to task. So this assertive, defiant faith pleads, remembers, it preaches, and it waits. One commentator said, hope in essence is waiting for God to act. Somebody reminded me of this not long ago. Um, I heard Matt Chandler talk about what it means to wait on God. And it was so helpful to me. It immediately resonated with my experience. And all of these passages that talk about hoping in God, waiting in God, actually, both of those translations are faithful to what this word means. So when he says, hope in God, he's meaning Wait on God. Trust in him. Don't take matters into your own hands. Hope in him. But what does that mean? What's that look like tomorrow? So here's what Matt Chandler said about what it means to wait on God. What do you do when your mind is there, but your heart isn't there yet? You know what's true, 
but you don't feel like it's true, what do you do? When there's a gap between your head and your heart, what do you do? You wait on the Lord. You hope in the Lord. It's not easy. But what you're doing is you're positioning yourself under the waterfall of grace, laying hold of the promises that you know are true even though you can't feel them at the moment, and you wait prayerfully, pleadingly, remembering the character of God, defying the world and the lies of the devil. You position yourself in that place and you take another step, trusting in the Lord with all your heart and not leaning on your own understanding. One, day, one step at a time, one day at a time, asking God to answer, to show up, to come through for you, to deliver you, to help you. And those who wait on the Lord, their strength will be renewed. You can bank on it. So, finally, this kind of faith, it also fights. Last point here under this assertive, defiant faith. If you stop back and think about the stuff you struggle with, do you ever just hoist up the white flag in defeat? Like with discouragement, depression, I mean, just... <sighs> How often do we indulge and wallow in and feed our self-pity, our despondency or whatever, rather than chastening it and preaching to ourselves, not listening to ourselves, and fighting? All this talk of fighting and you know, believing something when we don't feel like it, to some of you, it might feel like I'm saying... Fake it until it feels better. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a world of difference between faking and fighting. Listen to Eric Tonis. I love this quote. There's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. Isn't that helpful? Did you track with that? I know it's warm. Do you need that again? Anybody still awake? Okay, so there's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy. It's integrity. How about exhibit A, Jesus in the garden? Right before he was crucified. If there's any way that this cup can pass, but not my will, yours be done. That was integrity. So we so often feed rather than fight our sadness, our depression, our self-pity, our discontent, our bitterness. How do you think Johnny Erickson Tata, who has lived in a wheelchair for, I don't know, 50-some years, how do you think she's as joyful as she is today? By natural constitution? Are you kidding me? 
No, she's a warrior. We have to fight, folks. Rejoice in the Lord always. Seriously, Lord? Like, are you serious? That's crazy. Do you know my life? No, actually, his grace is so crazy that that's possible. And only if your joy is in the Lord will you be able to rejoice no matter what circumstances you're going through. So we've got to fight for joy every day. Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Are you kidding me? Do you see why we need to fight? But just so that you know that this doesn't all weigh on us, who is the God in whom we hope? Okay, spiritual drought, dark cave, you know, feeling abandoned. We can feel abandoned. But the God in whom we hope sent his son, and his son actually was abandoned. So that how we feel would not be the ultimate, you know, litmus test of reality. If we trust in Jesus, our Savior, who absorbed all of the darkness of this world, all of our sin, so that we could have the light, so, so God turned his face away from his Son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He truly was forsaken. So that even when we feel forsaken, I will never leave you or forsake you. He received the ultimate rejection that we deserve in our place so that we could have the ultimate acceptance, the light of his face, so that we could have the blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. We can have that because we're in Christ because Jesus took the darkness for us and gave us the light of life, new life. So again, yes, we have to fight, but the battle is won, and the battle is the Lord's, and we can fight in the strength that he supplies. So let's close in prayer here. We're going to sing um, a song here, Come People of the Risen King, which is appropriate. Come those whose joy is morning sun and those weeping through the night. Come those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight. For his perfect love will never change and his mercies never cease. But follow us through all our days with the certain hope of peace. Oh God, we thank you that you have fought for our joy and you won the most decisive battle against everything that was killing our joy, stealing our joy, and spiraling us into the darkness of separation from you. We thank you for sending forth your son, sending forth your light and your truth to save us. And we pray that you would shine and send forth your light and your truth into our dark hearts so that you would lift our face and give us joy. Help us to fight for joy. 
And I pray that our joy would be full and people would wonder about the hope that's within us because of who you are for us. So we need your help and your grace, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.